Yeah, it's on. There we go. When we consider... Can I begin now, or I'm just, I'm not giving it. Good. When I consider, you know, Miriam and Aaron, and we learn lessons from Noah and his sons, and lessons from Korah, and then we're warned in the New Testament about not walking in the way of Korah, just like we're not to walk in the way of Balaam. These are all warnings in the New Testament that... That's why it's of great value to understand what's going on in the Old Testament so we can learn these spiritual lessons. As much as they represent lessons in rebellion, if there's any shining example of submission and authority uh, to authority, it would be David. David certainly uh, sinned in a, just a great way and the, the consequence of that particular sin uh, with Bathsheba, uh, he he experienced consequences. But when it comes to a man that knew how to honor authority, we find that God continued to keep his promise and to keep his covenant and be faithful with David. David, as you know, was a man that was chosen of God. First Samuel 16 is where his story begins. And we know that he was chosen of God. He was anointed of God as a young, young boy. Samuel came to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king. Saul, the kingdom was taken from him because he was a man that didn't obey God. And he was a man that uh, just uh, served God his way. And things got progressively worse. So now we find David is anointed, but just like Jesus in this set regard. Jesus knew about his father's business but he didn't qualify to work in the business until he was 30. And many times we may be in touch with what God has for our lives, that just because we know what God wants us to do doesn't mean we're ready to do it yet. There's got to be preparation, and there's got to be timing, and there's got to be all these kinds of things. So David knew that he was called to be king because he was prophesied over to be a king when he was just a young boy. But he went from being a king, as you well know, into a wilderness well, God anointed David. He took down Goliath. David would minister to Saul. Saul, by King Saul, by this time, the Bible said the spirit of the Lord left Saul. And, in, and a tormenting spirit literally was placed on his life. The only relief he got was when David would come in and play his harp. David was an anointed minstrel, and he would minister to his authority. He would minister and there, was, and there was a beautiful relationship and a bond that took place between Saul and David. But as God began to elevate David, and they started to sing a song, David had slain his thousands, uh, Saul had slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. David was brought into national spotlight when he killed Goliath. It said, and Saul eyed David from that day on. Because this man was only interested about his place in the kingdom. So he's keeping an eye on this up and coming. And before you know it, we have Saul throwing javelins at David because David poses a threat to his position in the kingdom. So David is thrust into a wilderness and God is shaping the life of David for 13 years. And it's a very difficult time and this is all seen through 1 Samuel. But then we find that David has three encounters with Saul 
uh, all three times, oh, two times, Saul is asleep. He's vulnerable. And th think about it. 13 years of, or almost 13 years at that point of David's life. He's living life on the run. He's living in caves. He's having to escape for his life because of Saul chasing him. And who, and right here, he could end all of that by simply killing Saul. But he doesn't do it. And there is a, go to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel 12. Oh, I'm sorry, not 1 Samuel 12. 1 Samuel, that's the beginning. 1 Samuel chapter 24. And this is the restraint and the reason for the restraint that was in David's life. 1 Samuel 24, and take a look here at, in the beginning. And verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that you may do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose, cut off the skirt of, of, of Saul's robe privily, and it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him, all because he just cut the skirt of Saul's, the, a portion of Saul's, Saul's skirt. And here's what he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master for the Lord's anointed to stretch forth my hand against seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So we could see what was operating in the heart of David that made him a man after God's own heart. He was a man that understood authority. Quite honestly, the anointing had left Saul. The anointing left him, but God didn't remove Saul. He's still in the seat. Remember the seat? And basically what David was saying is, as long as he's in the chair, he's the chosen of God. I don't have the liberty... You guys can make it sound like, look what God did. Remember when God said, this is it, David. This is it. Go ahead. Do away with him. And he, you know, he, he, he just cut a piece of his garment and he gets sorely convicted. He said, wait a second. He said, I'm stretching my hand against God's anointed. He called him my master. My master. So then we find that was in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then we find in the wilderness of Ziph, Another opportunity. Saul wakes up from his sleep and he continues to pursue David. So now we go to 1 Samuel 26. This is his second encounter. Now David is encouraged. Saul there, he's, he's laying in the trench. He's with Abner. Abner, Abner is his bodyguard. It's the same scenario. A couple of, about a year later, he's with Saul again. Saul is vulnerable. He's with his bodyguard, and David sees him. And if you look here in verse 7, so David and Abishai came to the people by night. Behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster, but Abner and the people lay round about him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me spite, smite him. I'll do it with the spear even to the earth. 
uh, at once, I'll smite him uh, the second time. David said to Abishai, destroy him not. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now watch what David says, verse 10. And David said, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall die in a battle. So David knows he's destined for the throne. Now as long as the seat is occupied, David can't get in the seat. It's been a long wilderness. It's been a lot, you know, and it's evident God's not with Saul. Come on, David, you don't even have to do it. I'll do it. David said, no, you can't do it because that's the Lord's anointed. He's in the chair. So basically what he says is he's going to die one of three ways. Either God's going to take him out, then I'll go in. Or his day to die will come, which basically saying he's, David's was willing to wait until he died. Or he'll die in battle. What he's basically saying is, let God deal with him. But I'm not touching him. And I don't want you to touch him. And they take, if you read it, they take the spear. Now that spear, David had to dodge that spear years ago. David, they get the spear and it's in David's hand. And you know what David does? He yells, wakes up Saul, and he rebukes Abner. He said, how come you're not guarding your king? How come you're not? And here's David with the spear that almost killed him. And when the king arose, he goes, is that David? And David calls Saul his father. He said, it's your son. And then David puts the spear back in his hand. That's how much David trusted God. Put the spear back in his hand. And you know what Saul said? He said, because my soul was precious in your sight, now I know the Lord shall establish your kingdom. And then Saul, as you know, went and he died in the battle. And David so honored Saul, even in his death, that when he got word that Saul died in the battle and Saul was on his spear, in 2 Samuel, he pushed the spear into himself and his life was still, you know, he hadn't died. A young man came passing by and he called a young man, probably could hardly speak, said, push me, push me. And the man got on top of Saul and finished the job. This, this is really not part of the teaching, but how many know who that young man was? He was an Amalekite. An Amalekite that Saul was commanded to destroy 38 years earlier. And whatever little Amalekite was allowed to live, eventually wound up killing him. Turn to your neighbor say, kill the Amalekite. Whatever little flesh we allowed to live, somewhere down the road, just a little lust, come on, just a little envy, just a little jealousy, give it time to grow up. Give it time to become stronger. And one day when you're vulnerable, that little Amalekite is going to finish the job in your life. you got to kill it when it's young. Come on now. So now that Amalekite, who was the offspring of Esau, Esau is a type of the flesh anyway, it speaks of the flesh, brings the crown to David. David said, who are you? He said, I'm Amalekite. 
And he looks at that, he goes, what, that was on Saul's head. He said, yeah, I know. He said, but Saul, he's dead. How do you know that? He said, I finished the job. You did, did you? David said, have this man killed. Killed the man. Because he killed Saul. Then he says, don't tell it in Gath. Don't spread the word how the mighty have fallen. You know who that reminds me of? Japheth and Shem. Don't spread the word. The fault of Philistines took Saul. They hung his carcass. Beheaded him. Hung his carcass in the, in the uh, gallery of their false guard, uh, gods. David went and got his body and gave the man a burial. And honored him in his death. Said don't spread the word. He was an honorable man. Honorable man. And so as a result... David was established in the throne, a man after God's own heart, because David understood authority. Now, I do want to go somewhere that I think is really important, and it has to do with the apostolic church. And uh, this whole, I do believe that we are in a time of rediscovering God's order for his church. This is so very essential. The church needs a chiropractic adjustment because we've been out of order for so long. We've allowed the ideas of men, the traditions of men, and all of these things to shape the church. But God wants to bring us back to the divine order. Amen? I'd like you to go to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5. And I just want to spend a few moments understanding this. Verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant, on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason thereof, he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Now this is the high priest. The writer of Hebrews, to the Hebrews, is drawing from the Old Testament to share about Christ. No man takes this honor unto himself. The word honor there is authority. The high priest was the man that had authority over the priesthood. No man takes this honor unto himself. In other words, you can't call yourself into the ministry. You couldn't call yourself into the priesthood. Look what it says. But he that is what? Called of God as was Aaron. Look at verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself, to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And in other words, he said Christ didn't even place himself into the ministry. The Father had to place him. No man takes this honor unto himself, but he that's called of God, as was Aaron. So the moment he says, as was Aaron, what we have, do I have the pen here? I have a habit of misplacing these pens. I don't know what I do with them. 
There's a red one. Okay, we'll go red. Oh, here it is. No man, I'll use the red. No man except, I'm going to talk to us for a second about the Aaronic order. And we're going to see end New Testament order. So we're reading in the New Testament about Aaron. Because it has to do with the flow of authority and apostolic order. Now, I'd like you to go to Exodus chapter 28, if you would. Let me... Exodus 28. I want to get to where I am. Look at the beginning of Exodus 28. And look what it says in verse 1. Exodus 28.1. Let's go look at the call of Aaron because the writer of Hebrews is talking about it. Take unto thee Aaron thy brother, this is to Moses, and his what? Sons. With him from among the children of Israel that he may minister unto me in the priest office. And so this is the order of Aaron. Take Aaron and his sons. Now in the in the Old Testament, it's natural sons. Everything in the Old Testament's natural, everything in the New Testament spiritual. So if you're going to have a priesthood that ministers before God, then it's going to be Aaron and his sons. These are going to be priests What is Aaron? He's the high priest. And now when you read that, and then they had to wear special garments. They were anointed for the priesthood. Aaron is a priest, but he's a high priest. And the difference is Aaron has oil poured on him. They don't have oil poured on them. They have oil sprinkled on them. Everybody's got blood sprinkled on them. Because you've got to be sanctified by blood and sanctified by spirit in order to minister to the Lord. But Aaron has oil poured on him. Whenever oil was poured, that always denoted a place of authority. Oil was poured on Saul. Oil was poured on David. Oil is poured on Aaron. Psalm 33, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. But it's like the precious ointment that was what? poured on the head of Aaron and flowed all the way down. So Aaron has the authority within the priesthood. No man takes this honor unto himself, but he that's called of God, as was Aaron. How was Aaron called? With his sons. It is a father-son order. And the father in the priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, is... Uh, anointed, and he has the authority. Now, when you go to uh, Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, chapter 8, and let's take a look at this. Leviticus 8, verse 1. 
And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his what? Sons. Look at verse 6. And Moses brought Aaron and his what? Sons. And he washed them with water. Verse 12. And he poured of the anointing oil on Aaron and anointed him to sanctify him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and put coats on them. Go to verse uh Go to verse 30. And Moses took of the anointing oil and of the blood which was upon the altar, sprinkled it on Aaron, sprinkled on his garments, sprinkled it on his sons and his sons' garments, and they were sanctified. Verse 36. So Aaron and his what? Did all things which the Lord commanded by Moses. So there we see the placement of ministry, father and sons. Now let's look at the coordination of how they actually function. Go to the next chapter, chapter 9. Look at verse 9. Read it with me. And the sons of Aaron brought the blood unto... All right. We see that when they are actually functioning, the ministry of the sons is a ministry unto the father. The father's ministry was unto the Lord. But the son's ministry is unto the father. Now watch this. Go to verse 12. And he slew the burnt offering and Aaron's sons presented unto what? Presented unto him. Notice how all they're doing is presenting their ministry is to Aaron. The blood which he sprinkled round about the altar. Verse 13. Read it with me. And they presented the burnt offering unto who? Unto him. So we find these sons. So what we need to see is that the way the ministry functioned was it was the high priest that offered unto the Lord. But what he got to offer unto the Lord, his sons gave to him. So his son's service was to him. His service was to the Lord. And as this priesthood is coordinated in ministry, and this is all going to make sense in a moment, while it's all coordinated in ministry, look what it says in verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out, blessed the people, and what happened? The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. When we have proper order... There's always the manifestation of the glory of God. See? Again, like I said, and I believe in fasting, I believe in prayer, it's a life practice. But you cannot replace divine order. You could fast for 40 days, you could fast for 80 days. Oh God, show up. God, manifest your glory. And, but the thing is, you may have to, we may have to come into order. So here you had a priesthood ministering a father with sons, ministering in proper order. They're ministering to the father. The father's ministering to the Lord. Everything is flowing. They're anointed with oil. He has oil poured on him. Everything is flowing. And the result of a proper order of ministry is the glory of the Lord appears. Okay? So it, it, it goes forth. Now... We have a problem when we get to Leviticus 10. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took, no man takes this honor, took the censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, 
and they offered strange fire. Strange. Unto the Lord, and there went out a fire from the Lord and devoured before God. What happened? I mean, every day, God says that incense was to be offered. But if you read in Exodus, it was Aaron who was to offer the incense. They were to prepare the incense. But one day, they said, man, we saw Dad do this a hundred times. We know how to do this. They took the censer. And they took it upon themselves. Now, they were his sons. To walk in a place they were not anointed for. And they start going, hitting that censer. Again, they're not doing anything overtly evil. They're not committing you know, all kinds of sins that gets all the headlines. All they're doing is what they've seen Dad do a million times. And here's what we have is a problem. Many times, people will venture into places of ministry simply because they know how it's done. Just because you know how to preach doesn't mean you can pack up, go open up a church, and start preaching. Just because you know how to do something doesn't give you the authority to do it. Come on now. I mean, I don't want to, I don't know if I'm stepping on any toes, but I'm going to leave tomorrow. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Just as long as I'm not stepping on his toes. That's the only one. <laughs> but we have this all over the country. We've got self-appointed people who served as sons for so long that just because they knew and they felt they could even do it better than dad, they took it upon themselves. No man takes it. They took it upon themselves to venture into places when they should have stayed a son. And they called themselves to be a father. And it wasn't time. And now they're offering incense. And everybody's saying, wow, that's wonderful. And God said, that's strange fire. The word strange is where we get the word stranger from. It means to come from another place. Right? I'm really a stranger. I'm not from Indiana. Because I come from Pennsylvania. In that regard, I'm a stranger. I've come from another place. God said, this fire is strange. Because it's not coming from the right place. See? And we could offer things to God. But... If it's not coming from the right place, man may say it's okay. God says it's not acceptable. It's strange. Does this make sense? It's strange. So God judges these two sons. Wow. I mean, you talk that, isn't that severe? No, because it's rebellion. It's my will. I'll take the censor. God judges them. In fact, we're going to move to the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, do you know who became a high priest after Aaron died? The son of a high priest. And that order was always perpetuated. If a high priest was always replaced with a son of the high priest. It went from father to son. Say that with me. From father to son. And you know what the son had to do before he could be the high priest? He had to wear his father's covering for seven days. Seven is the number of fullness. That means he had to be able to fit 
and grow into the role until he was mature with what covered his father. Come on now. He had to wear his father's coat. He had to be able to wear his father's coat before he can do what his father did. So any son not willing to wear the father's covering should never be a son that would ever be appointed by a father to do what the father did. Hear what I'm saying? Got to wear your father's covering. Got to wear his father's covering. So any son willing to wear the father's covering would eventually then step in place when the father was moved to another place or if he died, the only one that was to replace him in God's order was a son that wore his father's covering. Wow. Wow. Is this truth? This is God's order? You see, just because you went to seminary for five years and you got enough degrees, more than a thermometer, as they say, I have a son, spiritual son. I've got a son who pastors 40 miles north of me. And he was first introduced to my life when I pastored a little inner city work in Boston. He was going to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And to not get into all the details, God spoke to him that he was to serve, and and in his words, sit at my feet. He was going there to get a degree to work with young youth or youth ministry kind of thing. Well, God interrupted his plans because he happened to be sitting in my class. I was teaching on from father to son. He hated the class. He was so mad at me because I was dealing with spiritual authority. And God began to speak to him. He left the college, left seminary, never got the degree to this day. And now this is 20, whatever, how many years ago? Today he's pastoring 250 people, wonderful son, raised kids, doing great. Left all that to come and sit at my feet, pastoring just a little church. And he served as a son. He served taking care of our few youth. He served cleaning the church. He served all those things. You know what he told me, Pastor? He said, Pastor, up at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, let me tell you what all those students do. All they do is cut up their pastor. They all talk about, you know why? Because they think they know better. Because they're serving in ministries where some of them, the men are older, they never went to seminary. And these guys think that they know little Greek, they know little Hebrew, and all they do is talk bad about their pastor. He said, while they're getting degrees, it's a haven of rebellion. They have disrespect for the men and women of God. And that spirit was all over me. And when I started to attend your Bible study and you're dealing with spiritual authority, he said, I was getting so upset. But I couldn't deny the scripture. And God was dealing with my heart. And he said, now that I've removed, I realize it's a haven of rebellion. And we're given degrees and we're rewarding rebellion only because we've replaced knowledge. See, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? It's growing in the seminary. We're encouraging young men and women to eat from a wrong tree while their hearts are not in God's order. And thinking that just because they know a little Greek or Hebrew or have a degree that they should be behind a pulpit leading a people when they never followed their way to leadership. They never wore a father's covering. They never said, cover me. 
And I'll come under that covering and serve under that covering so they don't qualify. But just because they can spout some things off from what they learned and information. And as a result, there's no power. No power in their lives. And there's dead preachers preaching to dead people. But when you got a man and a woman of God that's honored the principles of God. Come on now. There's an authority, a spiritual authority that comes out. And if we see this and we align ourselves, going back to my condition, if we'll get into proper relational alignment. If you're in the house that God planted you, don't you ever let anybody speak bad about your preacher. Bad about your past. You shut your mouth. I had somebody at my table in Boston that was cutting down somebody, not my pastor, but somebody we all respected. And they were just speaking one thing against the other. And finally I said, listen, brother, you cannot continue talking like that. Otherwise, you can't stay here. Because I realized, say, isn't that rude? No, that's a spirit. That's a spirit. And God hates it. Come on now. Mm -mm -mm -mm. So go to 1 Corinthians. We'll end with this. So, all right, well, we're learning about priesthood. How many know we're all priests? Well, if we're priests, we should get, we should get into order. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Praise the Lord. And take a look here at verse. Verse 15. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ Jesus, you have not many what? Fathers. For in Christ Jesus I've begotten you through the gospel. Whereof I beseech you, be followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my what? Beloved son. And he's faithful in the Lord. What will he do? He will bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. I believe they are most like the church in America. They're the most charismatic church. It's a convention center. Guess who goes to preach there? Apollos. Peter. I mean, they get the big names. Paul goes. But some say, I'm of Peter. I'm of Apollos. They have all the gifts. They're all prophesying. They're speaking in tongues. And you know what Paul says? I couldn't write unto you as spiritual. You're all babies. You're all babies. And what earmarked them as babies was two things. They tolerated sin in the church. And they tolerated division in the church. Because there are divisions among you. They tolerated sin, tolerated division. And basically what Paul is saying is this. You came behind in no gift. You could speak in tongues all day. You're still a bunch of babies. And the reason you're babies is this. He said, because you're violating the fact that I'm a father. Only a father can bring one to maturity. You got 10,000 instructors. The Amplified says... You heap one teacher after another teacher after another teacher without number. Let me put it in today's context. You run to Dallas, 
You run to L.A., you run to conference after conference after conference. You got book after book. You got Christian TV after station after station. You've got 10,000 instructors and you still have division. You've got problems. You're not coming to maturity. I would rather trade 10,000 instructors for one faithful father and be a son at his feet. And says, you just direct my service. How can I serve? Because if I will come into order, I will come into maturity. Come on. This is what Paul's saying. This is your answer. Why? Because what does a father provide? He says, follow me. A father, first of all, provides an example. A father provides an example. Follow me. As I follow Christ. A father leads footprints. What did God tell, say about Abraham? He said, before I go destroy Sodom, this is in uh, Genesis chapter 18. I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do because I know him. He will command his household after him to walk in righteousness. Now, some like to command their children ahead of them. No, he will command his household after him, which means that Abraham was leaving footprints and then telling his kids, you got to walk in that. A father provides an example. A teacher could just give you notes and information. And remember, they have the Corinthians, which means they are Greek-oriented. We are a Western culture. We're oriented from the Greeks. We think information translates into authority. We think just because we know things, we've got authority. But in the Bible mindset, it wasn't what you know, it's how you lived. It's what was integrated in your life. That's what gives you authority. So he said, you follow me. And he said, and to make sure you know my ways, uh, I'm not going to come myself. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send Timothy. He's my beloved son. He's faithful. In the Lord. And he's going to bring you into remembrance of my ways, which I teach in every church. I'm not going to take all this time, but, but the portrait of a true father... It's one that provides an example. It's one that raises up sons who are faithful. And one who teaches what they actually live. I teach in church what I walk. I teach what I walk. Teach in all the churches my ways. How many know a way speaks of what you do? That's what Paul was teaching. He didn't just wow you with... Some kind of information. He's saying this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. He was able to point to his life, not as perfect, but as an example. See? And when you have that, there is no greater treasure. There's no greater treasure that a family could have than a faithful father. There's no greater treasure that children could have than faithful godly parents. I know that children are a gift from God to parents. 
but parents are a gift from God to children. Can you say amen? amen? There's no greater treasure a congregation could have than a faithful father. No greater treasure. Preachers are a dime a dozen. You could have 10,000 teachers, but not many fathers. Come on now. Because like a faithful father, he'll, and I can go on and on and on what a father would do, sacrifice for the flock. The father puts the needs of a household first. How many times when your pastor was, you know, working the beat in New York City, I'm sure there were times he just wanted to roll over and stay in bed that day, but he had a few mouths he had to feed, right? He had some sons and he had a daughter he had to take care of. So it caused him to have to go put on his uniform on a hot New York City day and go walk the beat or do whatever he had to do to get up again. You know why? Because a faithful father has got to put their needs second and the needs of his children first. That's the earmark of a father. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Or a father says, my little children, Galatians 4.19, I travail in birth till Christ be fully formed in you. He said, I'm praying to see the fullness of Christ's nature in you. That's the heartbeat of a father, is to bring the congregation to maturity. I like what else Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7. He said, as a chaste virgin. Now, a chaste virgin means a pure virgin, that I might present you to Christ. That's the picture of, of a father that's going to walk his daughter down the aisle. And in a perfect situation, in a, in a, that father is basically handing off a daughter, giving her into the hands of another, and saying, look, up until this point, I've done everything to take care of this girl. She's been clothed. She's been cared for. She hadn't go to sleep wondering when she wakes up what life's going to be all about. And I've done whatever I could. Now I'm going to put her in your hands. And see, that's, and that's what Paul's saying. That my entire ministry is not for me to become famous and you're going to get me there. Amen. My ministry is that I may be able to walk you down the aisle and present you to Christ. A church without spot and wrinkle. The, the, the whole purpose of the ministry is to bring a people to maturity that they may be espoused to Christ. Is that right, Pastor? It's the perfection of the saints for the work of the ministry. And I think God's getting us back into order. And the result is going to be a mature church, a glorious church, and the glory of God presiding and residing in our midst. Can you say amen? amen? Let's close with this. Hebrews chapter 13. This will be the last. My first of three Pentecostal closings. No. Three verses to leave you with. I think it's on your notes. I'm pretty sure it's on your copy. I'm working from another sheet here. Are you enjoying this? Are you getting something from it? All right. I'm probably not telling you anything new. Yes, Hebrews 13. 
three exhortations concerning leadership that we have. If you look on your page 12 of your notes, actually, might as well look at the Old Testament. See the flow chart I have? Okay, this is the natural. This is the natural, and this translates to the spiritual. And it's a flow of authority. In the natural, we had from God to Moses. How many know Moses went up to meet with God? And then he got all of the blueprints. He got the commandments. Moses then gave the word to Aaron. And then Aaron had his sons, the priest. And then we go down to the Levites. Now the Levites, they moved the furniture. When the cloud moved, Aaron didn't pick up the altar of incense. A Levite did. Now just because a Levite picked up the altar of incense, that didn't automatically make him a priest. See? So he picked that. Then you had the congregation and you had a flow of authority. In the New Testament, we have God the Father. But then Jesus makes this statement. All authority in heaven and in earth has been given unto who? Me. So we have God. He gives all authority to His Son who is sitting with Him on the throne. Then we have Jesus giving that authority. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They come under authority. Then under them we have who appoints elders? Apostles. Elders are appointed. Elders are placed. An apostle is not placed. An apostle is called. Elders are placed. Somebody say elders are placed. That's why they could always be replaced. They are placed. You could desire to be an elder. If any man desire to be an elder. Right? But you can't just desire to be an apostle. You've got to be called or a prophet. These are five-fold callings. So there's going to be a strict judgment. So then you have elders. You've got deacons. You have the congregation. So there's a flow chart of authority by callings that come from God. At any one of these levels, I didn't write them out, how many know the authority of an elder ultimately comes from God? Now it came through an apostle, but all authority comes from where? Comes from God. So when you say, uh, I need to see pastor, and all of a sudden you got an appointment with an elder, but for some people they need to see just the pastor. No. If you're not receiving his authority in that man, you're not receiving him. Jesus said, he that receiveth you receiveth me. He that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. So if I want to really receive from God... I better learn to receive from my brother or my sister. Because I'm going to receive from God that way. No, I just get it from God. I just go directly to God. Well, that's rebellion because you are trying to go another order. You're violating God's order. And so what happens is you are resisting the order, the ordinance of God. And the Bible says condemnation will come to your house. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Okay, let's look at these verses. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, verse 7. Let's read it together. 
Remember them which have the what? Yeah, I know. This is America. But look, rule over you. Who have spoken unto you the word of God, who's what? Considering the end of their, which means lifestyle. So notice the qualification. Remember those that have rule over you. That's authority. Now, how do they qualify to have this kind of authority? They spoke in the word. Come on. They spoke in the word. They've demonstrated a faith you can follow. And it says, consider their lifestyle an example. If you got those three things, a man, a woman of God that spoke the word, a man, a woman of God that's got faith you could follow, a man, a woman of God that's got a life that's a good example, come on now, remember them. Remember them. That means call them to mind. Call them to mind. I've had situations. You're going to have situations, brother, as a son to your pastor, where his example, things he said from the pulpit and privately with you will be forever etched as a reference point in your life. Forever. Forever. And it will help you in your ministry. What would pastor do? You'll remember what he taught you. Different things. Remember when Joshua... Moses' hands were up. Remember that? And Joshua was out there killing everybody. And as, Mo, as long as Moses' hands were up, everybody was winning. Then they won. And you know what God told Moses? He said, rehearse this in the ear of Joshua. Wow. Now, maybe it didn't make sense to Moses as to why should I whisper this lesson into his ear. But about 40 years later, he's going to be the man that takes over. So it doesn't matter whose other ear you don't talk to. Make sure you talk in his ear. In other words, Dad, impart those lessons to this son. You don't know it now, but one day you're passing the baton to him. And he's going to be able to take with him all of the references that came from his father. Come on now. That's why when we are in order, really every generation should go beyond where it came from. We shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel again. We shouldn't have to start from square one again. The reason why is because we are breaking in order. There should be a compound anointing. I should move in a greater strength than the generation before me. Why? Because I've got the benefit of all their experience. I've learned through their experience. And even when, remember when I said the high priest, the priest put the father's coat on? When the father was anointed and that oil went on the coat, eventually when the son wore the coat and he had his oil poured on him, it was stained with the father's outpouring. Then he passed the coat on. And after several generations, that coat was so stained with multi-generational anointings that by the time you get to the fifth generation, if the order's right, they should be coming into greater places. Come on. Then when it started. And there's no greater joy for a pastor, for a, for a true father, than to see the success of his children. Makes them prouder than what they could accomplish in life. To see their sons go beyond. They'll work hard. They'll work their finger to the bone just so that their sons and their daughters can go beyond where they went. That's the true heart of a father. 
But if you've got a Saul spirit, and all you're interested is in you being the head in the kingdom, you become threatened by the success of your sons. Come on. There's jealousies and there's envies. Okay, let's go to verse 17. We're coming to a close. Is this all right? All right. Obey them that have the rule over you. Notice the phrase, have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, why? For they watch for your soul as they that must give an account that they may do with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Again, a leader is somebody who should be watching over your soul. And anybody that takes the time to watch over your soul, knowing they're going to give an account, I mean, that's an awesome responsibility. You think about that. We're going to stand before God, and He's going to ask me about the flock He entrusted, those lives that He entrusted to my life. And I'm going to, I don't know how it's going to be, but I believe the Bible, and I'm going to have to give an account. See, that's why we should never look at authority like somehow it's a great reward. It means responsibility. Doesn't it? It means responsibility. Give an account. And then I like what it says, that they would not do it with grief. You look up the word grief, it means exasperated or with a... I used to think about when my parents would go out and I was real young, growing up in the Bronx, and my cousin would babysit me. I don't even know if my sister was born. Maybe she was. But if I didn't obey that babysitter and my parents came back and they heard a bad report, it's not going to go well for me in the morning. Because really they had authority in place of my parents. So they had to give an account for my soul. So how was Philip? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. He did this, he did that, he did this, he did that, he did this. No, I didn't do it directly against my mother. I didn't do it against my father. But how many know the next day mom and dad's going to take care of it? Right? So that's what he's saying. But if they said, you know what, he's just the greatest kid to watch. It is wonderful. That's what they're saying. Make sure they give account with joy. Not with when, I don't know how it's going to be, but Jesus comes. Uh, now, I want to talk to you about that Sister Mary. And I go, oh, my Lord. Sister Mary. Sister Mary, you don't want me to do that when Jesus comes. And I got to say, you want me to say, Sister Mary, if I had a church filled with Sister Marys. Yeah, right. Because I don't know. Maybe after I say Sister, he's going to call Sister Mary up. <laughs> That's what it says. It says, obey them, submit, that they can with joy give a report, not with grief like. <sighs> okay, I hope your name's not Mary. It was only an example. All right. One last verse, 24, same chapter. Salute. Say, now, Pastor Phil, you're going too far here, you know. Salute. I'm going to tell you what it is. Salute them that have the rule over you. Notice every verse here says that have the rule over you. So that means that not everybody's equal. There are some that have the rule over you. Salute them. It means the enfolding of the arms. It's, it's not military salute. Salute means a, an embrace. I could really write embrace them that have the rule. It speaks of a heart thing where they don't have to try to force themselves. 
I embrace you. I embrace your authority. But it also speaks of the kind of relationship we're to have. The way authority flows in the kingdom, unlike the world, is there are definite levels of authority. We definitely honor that authority. We follow our way to leadership, but it should all be in the context of love. Of love. We should be able to enjoy, love, embrace, while we never lose sight of God's authority and our service. And that's what makes the kingdom of God shine. Remember when the Queen of Sheba came? It was the meeting of two kings. One represented the most powerful kingdom in the world. The other one was displaying in the Old Testament the kingdom of God. Was one king looking into the window of another kingdom. What did she see? She said, happy are your servants that stand before you continually. She saw people serving with joy. She said, the half had not been told me. And she lost her breath. So it was the kingdom of this world looking into the kingdom of God. And she saw that the servants were serving with joy, stood before Solomon. They had meat on the table, great sacrifice in the house of God. And she said, I ain't never seen anything like this in all my life. What should there be in the church which should really be a representative of the kingdom? There should be love, honor, service, authority, all with joy, righteousness, peace, not with constraint, and it should all testify of God having worked in all of our hearts. No sign of rebellion anywhere. Just submission, because the fact is, leaders who are submitted, because the fact is it all testifies that there is a king we're all submitted to, and he has conquered all of our hearts. Amen? Any questions? Anything? Do we have a couple of minutes if you want to just... What really rang your bell? What's, what, what did we say today that really, hmm, the Holy Spirit really emphasized or something that you feel would be a contribution? Or if you have a question, anybody? Any questions, any comments, responses? You got something out of it? All right. Praise the name of the Lord. I learned... Uh, I was looking at my life, Pastor Phil, and I realized from 1970, well, 78 was when I got saved. 79 was when I went to Love Church, January of 79. And it was 89 when Karen and I went to Boston. So that was 10 years of 10 years in the, in the local church. Then from 89 to 99, we were in Boston. Then we went into another transition, another 10 years. And we're, we're to, to 2009, and then 2009 started another transition, which I'm in now. It's an amazing, yeah. God has had me on a 10-year trek. But the prominent lesson of my first 10 years was two things. Understanding authority and being faithful in another man's vision. Because Jesus asked the question, he that is, if you're not faithful in that which is another man's, who will give you that which is your own? 
So the first 10 years of my pilgrimage in Christ, my primary lesson was learning how to respect authority and serving that way. And there was opportunity for my gifts to start to grow in another man's field. And I really learned something that I really had opportunity. The, the extension of everything that's here is the outgrowth of ministry God's put, given in two people's life. The tape ministry and nursery. Any aspect, not just of church, but anything that comes out of going to Fiji and the nations and there will be more nations. When you really think about it, while you're serving, it is really extension and expressions of the ministry of Christ through the headship of this church. So always count it an honor and a privilege that while you have certain gifts, it's not so much your ministry. It's all his ministry. But I've been given opportunity to be able to allow my gifts to be exercised in an expression of ministry that's been an outgrowth of their lives. Children, youth, all these kinds of things. This is, this is why when uh, Steve, who is my spiritual son, and I say that just to reinforce the point, who's pastoring, when he came to take over a children's ministry in a church in Pennsylvania, they were having a lot of trouble. Large church, 1,500 people. They had about 350 kids. And while I was there helping them, within three years, they had two or three different children's workers. And the pastor kept hitting an impasse. You know why? Because they were collecting resumes. And here comes a children worker, meets with pastor, has an interview. The pastor would ask, what's your vision? The children worker would, the, the leader would say, well, this is my vision for kids. Well, this is my vision. And everything seems to start off all right until his vision conflicts with that vision. Then they feel led to go somewhere else. Get another resume. And then they have another. And they go through this. Now this is repeated in churches all across America. Yes, now you keep doing that. You know what happens? Weakness in the ministry. Right. One day Steve sits down. Steve has his pad. And the pastor asks Steve. He's asked this question. If he didn't ask it twice, he asked it ten times. What's your vision? Steve has a pad, he looks at the pastor and he said, oh, I'm not here, I don't have a vision. I want to know what your vision is. I'm ready to take notes because I believe there's one vision in the house. So whatever your vision is, has got to make its way into the children's ministry. So go ahead, what's your vision? Well, that pastor came into my office. So I never had an interview like this. I said, because you were interviewing a son. For 10 years, he my he don't know how to act any. He knows there's one vision. And that's all he knows. I'm not here to do my thing. I'm here to help you do your thing in the children's ministry. You hear me? And that thing just flourished and it grew and it developed into family ministries. And it just took on a whole nother thing. But that was the mindset of a son. Not just somebody that filled out a resume and said, I'm just looking somewhere where I can do my thing. No. He understood spiritual authority. He understood there's a vision for this church. And God brings that vision to pass through the administration and the appointment of authority and gifts and callings. And so you need to talk to me 
more than I need to talk to you. And I need to be the one listening and writing notes down to make sure what you believe somehow makes its way into the children ministry because that should make its way into the youth. It should make its way into the seniors. It should make its way. It should be one vision that's being administrated in every part of the house. That makes sense? And you know what happens then? You've got strength and you've got the fulfillment of the vision of what God said. But the problem is we don't have sons many times that we anoint in our place. And I bring all this up because of the transition you're in. When God gave the instruction for the anointing oil in Exodus 30, He told them what the anointing oil was to be made from. You need to read it. Then He says, do not pour it on man's flesh. Right? Then He says, and a stranger shall not be anointed with it. Too many times, stranger means to come from another place. We pour our anointing on strangers. They were not part of the house. They didn't come out of the loins. They come from a foreign place. They come from another place. Now, there's an exception to every rule. But the problem is, this has become the rule. They come from another place with another vision, with another foundation. But because they have certain gifts, because we have a great need, we start pouring anointing on strangers. And what happens? The church does not grow into the fullness of its calling. It goes through a wilderness. This one leads it into a vision. Then when he's gone, another stranger took the pulpit. It takes the church in this direction. And then another stranger comes, takes the church in that direction. But what happens is when we anoint sons, then the vision is established, a foundation is established, and now the next generation brings it a little further in what God's called for the life church. Then one day another son will be anointed. And it's not natural, it's spiritual. Could be natural, but the natural son better have become a spiritual son. And then what you have is, see, God had a certain idea when he planted this church. God rescued this house. God allowed this house to go through things when you came as just proof to show that God's hand was on this work. But he brought the house into proper order. And now the house has been and is being ready to go to the next dimension of its calling. Can you say amen? amen? Praise the Lord. I'm so thrilled with what's happening here. I'm so thrilled because on that front row is a father and a son. Now look, here's a man. I don't know all the details, but I know you were. Didn't you? you were pastoring in Indianapolis. How easy it would have been to say, no, no, man, I'm doing my thing down here. Would you consider coming back and uh, coming back? I'm established here. I'm doing my thing. Here's a man who's willing to leave. And in the spirit of a son, say, how can I come and serve? And when that man stands behind this pulpit, there's an authority. He'll have his own gifts. He has his own uniqueness. But there is an authority in his life because he's honored an order. And we all go back to how we started. I too am a man set under authority. So I say to one go, and he will go. To another one come, and he comes. See, you'll be able to, brother, when you walk and you honor an order, you have an authority to establish that order in a house. When you're a son, 
then you have an authority to say, this is the order of this house. Right. I don't understand why God would do I don't. Why can't we? Because there's an authority, because you walk that path. And we want this path in this house because we recognize God's order. And when we function this way, the glory of God manifests within the vision. Amen. The Lord. Amen. God bless you. I haven't done that in 35 years. Father, in the name of Jesus, these are your precious people. And Lord, I feel like really I'm teaching or preaching to the choir because there's such a beautiful spirit here of people that not only love you, they embrace your word. There's such a, a, a fruitfulness in this house of honor and, uh, and life. Truly, it's named the Life Church and love and respect. And all of this is a reflection of an honoring that's given over to you. We ask that you would bless them now as they go on their day. Anoint them. God, if there's any here today who has received instruction to maybe bring order in their home or some aspect of their life, may the grace of God be upon them to take what's been out of order and to bring it into order. We pray the blessing of God on every home. I pray for the homes of the Life Church. I pray from the houses on up. Let there be a reflection of the Father's order. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen. I think we've uh, learned quite a bit this morning, today, this afternoon. Um, there will be uh, tapes available, as you know. The tapes are free, so I think you want to hear it again. Amen. Every once in a while. And for the pastors here, I want to give them the videos. So, you know, you can teach your church if you teach your leadership. So uh, come on out tomorrow. I really believe God's going to really do something special tomorrow. I really believe that. So, uh, Father, we thank you. We ask your blessings as we go. And Lord, we uh, anticipate you moving in this place tomorrow morning, Lord. Your presence would be so evident here tomorrow morning. And Lord, we just thank you for what you're going to do. Ask your blessings on your people as they go. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.